I begin with a story. About eight years ago, uh, at the, the, towards the end of, a, of an election cycle, I was in, invited by Craig McCoy, who was uh, Vice President of Finance at Trinity University, to go with him and to listen to Tony Blair, who uh, had just uh, ceased as the Prime Minister of England those duties, uh, was touring the United States, was extensively involved in uh, benevolent type work in Africa, primarily in the AIDS of in the a in the area of helping uh, stem the, the the flow of AIDS and those. Uh, that horrible disease in Africa is running rampant. And one of the things that he said was, in England, by law, they only have a two-week campaign period. Two weeks, then the election, next day, you go to work. And he said, maybe the United States could be blessed a little with some election reform, and everybody started laughing. He said uh, also that he, he was just worn out. It was, it was a, a, a tremendously uh, strenuous time in his life, had exerted a lot of energy for those two weeks, had not slept very much the 48 hours before being elected the Prime Minister of England. First thing you do upon being elected is you go and you meet the Queen. And uh, he was being told all of these instructions that when you go in, you walk at a certain kind of a rate. And uh, when you, you stand before her and you bow, she's going to put her ring out in front of you. And you're supposed to kiss the ring, but your lips are never supposed to touch it. They're just supposed to gracefully brush against her ring. And, you know, he says this is going in one ear and out of the other. And as he's walking up to the queen and she begins to stand before him, there's a little dimple in the carpet true story tony blair first day in the office he trips and falls face first into the queen of england and he said you can't really start worse than that when it comes to being a prime minister in england faith and politics we want to talk about this morning and the staff found out about it uh, one in particular said, I don't know what you're doing, you're crazy. <laughs> and I might be. But here's the thing, you can't read the Bible without running into politics. And so it, I, I think it, it's really important that we think about two stories, out of all of the stories in the Bible, we think of two stories in the life of Jesus. But before I do that, as way of preamble and before we pray, you know as well as I do that um, the present political processes are having an impact on churches rather than the other way around. Three, three reasons I say that. One is, there is an interesting but sad trend taking place in Christian churches in America. The trend is for conservative Christians to drop their standards for the faith in order to put their party in the office. This is most pronounced among white, conservative, evangelical Protestants. In 2011, only 30% of white evangelical Protestants believed that an elected official who committed an immoral act in their personal life 
could fulfill their duties of their public office. That was five years ago. Now in 2016, that 30% that believed that a guy could commit a, a terrible, immoral indiscretion, could continue to do his, his work in office, could be trusted, that has risen to 72%. This appears to reflect a trend that says, I'm okay with lowering my moral standards as long as I can get the candidate on the right. Now, that, that's not just a conservative issue. I mean, both candidates of the big two have their issues. But then number two, one of the things I think we've all experienced is the seeing that God's people are becoming not just a little polarized over this election. And then number three, I begin to hear a lot, <laughs> uh, I hear a lot, and you probably have too, that November 8th is going to be Armageddon. Which means that people are very fearful. At the outset, let me be very clear about something. I'm not advocating one candidate over the others. I believe that you can vote for a Trump or a Clinton or a Johnson or a Stein and not sell your soul. Definition of which is you'll, you're willing to do anything regardless of how it might violate your conscience and your value system to achieve your objective. That is a matter for you. The church, though, needs to be reminded that politics is not the ultimate answer to the problems that plague every city, in every society, in every age. The gospel is that answer. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we're, we're grateful that we do live in a country that is as blessed as ours is. The fact that we are, were able to do so many things that are religious or are not without fear, without anxiety, without stress is a blessing. But our prayer this morning, Father, is for us not just not just to be wise when it comes to making decisions, but that you will also give us discernment through your word and through your spirit, Father, to understand the times that we live in and especially see the power of the gospel in transforming people's lives. So bless us this morning, Father, as we strive, as we, we strive every time we come together to study, to have eyes that see and ears that hear. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. A man who I think understood politics as well as any human who ever lived, Abraham Lincoln. He said, I destroy my enemies when I make them my friends. That practice seems to be a far distance from where we are today. It seems like the political process is really, as, as, as you've experienced it even more so than I, has gotten really, really personal. But in no way is this unique to our time in history. I want to talk about two stories. The first story, I want you to think of the word image. The word image out of Mark chapter 12. The first century Jewish world was a deeply divided theological world as it was a deeply divided political world. We've talked about how Josephus reminds us from time to time when we read him that there were basically four, that there were more than this, but there were four basic 
Jewish philosophies of how Judaism was to be expressed in the world during the time of Jesus. The first, the Sadducees. This, these are the aristocratic folk, the folk with political influence. They're affluent. They're mainly based in and around Jerusalem, and they are the people who politically, because they do not believe theologically in a resurrection, that this world is what we make of it, that God is not active in His world through His Spirit or through the angels, that this world is the way that it is and this is the world that we have to deal with, they believe sort of polit politically that you make all the compromises that you need to in order to get along. Then you have the Pharisees. The Pharisees could be likened very much to the moral majority of the past 30 years. No longer um, does it exist. But during the first century, it was sort of the, the, the way that the Pharisees operated, even though they were not that much of a majority. They mixed religion and power and at times intimidation to be able to get what it was that they believed to be right. Then you have the Essenes. The Essenes, as you know, they moved out to Qumran. This is the place where we find the Dead Sea Scrolls. They just opted out. They became apolitical. They said, leave us alone. We want to be our own culture someplace else. Leave us alone. We're opting out. We're apolitical. We don't want to be involved. And then finally, you have the Zealots. The Zealots are those guys that are looking to turn all of Israel into the OK Corral. They're looking for a green light just to go and punch somebody in the face. They're looking for a gunfight. They're looking for a fight, and they are willing to die for what they believe in. Now, in the early years of Jesus' life, we're talking about 6 A.D., more or less, about the time that Jesus is 10 years of age, there is this fellow by the name of Judas the Galilean. He was a rabbi. He was very famous. Again, Josephus tells us about his life. He says there was a fellow rabbi along with Judas the Galilean that began to get a lot of fame and a lot of uh, notoriety and popularity in ancient Israel because they were preaching primarily the kingdom of God, that God is the one who ultimately reigns over us even though there's a fellow that represents Rome that's sitting over in Herod's palace. He also cleansed the temple and rededicated it. And he also encouraged the people not to pay the headcount tax. The Romans put a headcount tax on everyone. There was a little uh, denarius. And as you know, the denarius was not a whole lot of money. It was, it was basically, it represented a day's wages. And once a year, as sort of this headcount tax that was given to Rome, he, uh, he said, don't pay that tax because if you do, you're basically showing that it's really Rome that's in charge of us and it's not God. And Judas the Galilean, because he bucked against Rome and threatened that Roman peace, they, they caught him and they executed him. Twenty-five years later, Jesus the Galilean appears. He preaches the kingdom of God. In Mark chapter 1, after John is put into prison, Jesus goes into Galilee. He's proclaiming the gospel, the good news of God. And this is what he says. The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. 
One time they get him to just get overwhelmed, tried to get him overwhelmed with his healing ministry because it was popular. And he said, no, I've got to go and preach to all of these other villages because that's why I came. Primarily, Jesus was a preacher of the kingdom of God. But not only did he do that, but he also, as you can remember, cleansed the temple. Not once, but twice. Once at the beginning of his ministry, a second time not long before he is crucified. But in John chapter 2, after he goes in and he sees how the temple has been made a marketplace and that people are being ripped out of their money because they're having to pay these exorbitant prices for animals that are without blemish. And it's really wrecking the worship spirit of the people who have come on these long pilgrimages to, to Jerusalem and to the temple to worship. He begins to, to take this whip that he's made out of cords and to drive the animals and these, these, these merchants out of the temple precincts, he's starting to turn over the tables, and he says in verse 16, get these out of here, stop turning my father's house into a market. So he preaches the kingdom of God, and he cleanses the temple. Well, in Mark's gospel, the Pharisees and the Herodians come, and they ask him about paying the Roman headcount tax of one small denarius. They say, what do you think, Jesus? Should we pay the tax or not? And here's what they're thinking. If Jesus is a revolutionary and he says no, then he's going to be outed before the Roman eyes. They'll capture him and he'll be executed. Get him out of the way. But if Jesus says go ahead and pay the tax to Rome, then everyone will know that he's all talk and nothing but talk when it comes to the kingdom of God, and he's going to be dismissed. And what Jesus does, if you remember the story, is pure, pure genius. Jesus asks for a coin, and they produce one. And he asks, whose icon, whose icon or image is on this coin? Now remember, again, in the main, who's he speaking to? It's, it's the Jews, but the Pharisees, who are steeped in Scripture. And when he asks, whose image or whose icon does this coin bear? The immediate answer that everyone would have given is, it bears the image of Tiberius, Rome's emperor. But he uses that word icon or acon in the original language, and it's a thoughtful reminder to one of the earliest truths in the Bible. Genesis 1, verse 27. God created mankind in His own image. In the image, the word icon, in the image of God, He created them, male and female, He created them. Three of the really big truths that you find at the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 2, the first one is this, there is a God. And truth number two of the Bible is that he made human beings, he made you and he made me, and we are all made in his image, which means that there's something about being a human being that is iconic in the sense that we reflect something about our creator. And then truth number three, because he did make us, we owe our existence to him, we belong to God. Now listen to what Jesus says back in Mark chapter 12. They go, it's the image of Tiberius, of course. And then he says, give back to Caesar or surrender 
to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. When he says, give to God what is God's, he is calling them back to God and to God's kingdom. He is saying, only give to Caesar that which bears his image and belongs to him. Now, these are fellows, like all of them, that are wanting to see a political change on the landscape of Israel, and Jesus is calling them to be a part of God's revolutionizing kingdom and changing the hearts of men through the good news. In other words, he's saying to them, don't let rendering to Caesar distract you from the bigger kingdom of God issues, which are Luke chapter 19, verse 10, the Son of Man coming to seek and to save the lost. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy what? The devil's works. At the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he returns to his, homest- his hometown of Nazareth. It's the Shabbat, it's Sabbath. He goes into the village synagogue. They give him the opportunity to read from the Scripture. He sits down in Moses' seat and says, Would you mind getting me the scroll out of the vault that belongs to Isaiah? And they hand it to him. He unrolls it to Isaiah, what we would say is Isaiah chapter 61. And he says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He then rolls it back up and says, Today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And they get really, really angry with him. But in so reading, Isaiah chapter 61, Jesus says, These are the issues on which I am willing to die. And he calls his disciples to pick up their cross daily and to follow him in whatever political process or system that they find themselves part of. Story number two, keyword causes. Sometimes we can get, um, we can find ourselves getting to a place where we don't feel entirely comfortable with a candidate, and so we begin to look at the causes. In Luke chapter 13, some people come running to Jesus with the report of an atrocity. Israel is brimming with violent political conflicts. There's a critical mass during the time of Jesus that's beginning to form, that's going to lead to the Jewish-Roman war and the revolt of the Jews in AD 66, which is going to end with Jerusalem being razed to the ground in 70 and coming to an end in 73 AD when those zealots are completely wiped out of Masada. And here's the story that comes while Jesus is doing his thing. Did you hear that Pilate has mingled the blood of worshipers with their sacrifices? In other words, people were killed during their worship by this, this, this political leader. What are you going to do about it? Well, it's a terrible, terrible, terrible story. The irony in this is that Josephus, who writes extensively about these kinds of events taking place during the time of Jesus and leading up to the war between the Jews and the Romans, he has no love that is lost on Pilate. 
If there's something bad that he can write about Pilate, he's going to say it or he's going to write it down. Ironically, there's no mention of this, which has led some scholars to speculate that maybe this didn't really happen. That it's just part of that rumor mill that creates stories out of stories out of stories and people begin to hear the atrocities and begin to believe the worst. And, but it doesn't really matter because these people who report it believe it to be true. Jesus also treats it as factual. The bottom line is they want to know if Jesus cares about the national political crisis of Israel and what, if anything, he's going to do about it. Now, you know how we get when we're asked a question up front like that. We've got the Thanksgiving holidays coming up. What are the two things that you can't talk about over the turkey? Faith and politics. Oh, somebody said football. No, that's all we talk about is football. <laughs> That was a housewife. That's a football widow that said that. No, we're going to talk about football. But you don't talk about religion and politics. And so we kind of skirt the issue, right? Notice that Jesus doesn't do either of those things. Jesus does not jump down Rome's throat. And at the same time, he's also not silent. He treats the national political crisis as a part of the larger spiritual crisis of humanity. And so he asks a question, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. And then he goes on, he says, or those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam, this is down in Jerusalem, fell on them, do you think that they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. What Jesus is saying is that everyone who lives between an identifiable evil, in this case, a political atrocity, and an inexplicable evil, what insurance companies might call an act of God, the people living between those two poles, the response of Jesus is repentance. Now why in the world does Jesus answer this way? The reason is that moral causes do not make moral people. A just cause is not what is going to make you ju just. The reason is that we have to be on guard that our just causes do not bring out the worst in us. I'll give you an example that's off the political topic. Christians, as you know, have an extremely high view of human life that's grounded in creation theology. God created the heavens and the earth. He created us. He created us in His image. And that is why we believe, because of that high view of creation theology and human life, that is why we believe that abortion is absolutely wrong. Humans are made in the image of God. That does not justify, for any reason, the murder of a doctor who performed those acts in church in 2009. We have to be on guard that our just causes do not bring out the worst in us. 
And in response to the atrocity of Pilate mixing the blood of the worshipers with their sacrifices, Jesus says to the atrocity reporters, repent. Repentance means more than just changing your life's direction. Repentance is an invitation to join God's kingdom. Repentance is the recognition that sinners are not just out there, but they're in here. Sultan Eitzen has this this incredibly wise statement where he says, the line of good and evil is a line that runs through every human heart. And the ultimate answer to the human dilemma is not a just cause, but a cross and a resurrection. So three things as we think about issues and we or images and causes. Number one, exercise your right as a citizen. You are an American citizen, which means that you have the right to vote for the person you believe to be the best candidate to lead our country in the complex and complicated world we live in. As a church, we need to say we have to be done with the simple answers. There, there's more complexity to some of these issues than we're willing to give, give, cred- or, or, or give credit to. You are a, an American citizen. Exercise your right Go out and vote. But then number two, don't confuse the kingdoms. As disciples of Jesus, we are called, and not just called, but we demonstrate and manifest the highest standards of morality that exist. We live lives that exemplify love and grace and forgiveness and honesty, and self-control, and service to others, and patience, and inclusiveness, and generosity, and kindness. And that comes because we have set apart Jesus and made Him holy in our hearts. We also recognize that we live in a fallen world, a world that is full of thorns and thistles, and that there is no law that can change a human heart like the gospel of Jesus of Nazareth. All humans need the gospel. And as I said earlier, I believe that you can vote for a Trump or a Clinton or a Johnson or a Stein and not sell your soul in the process. That comes, though, when you vote for someone who you believe can successfully lead our country, but at the same time, be honest when they fail. The people of God, and I learned this from Martin Luther King Jr., who Time and time again, they pressed him in the 60s to define which political group he was a part of, and he would never define himself as Republican or third party or or Democrat because he believed that he should be a voice, a godly voice to the politically right and to the politically left. And that is the nature of our church. We are a voice in that process. And it's not our political leanings that unite us. And because it's not our political leanings that unite us, those political leanings should not be the very thing that divides us. It is the cross of Jesus that brings us together and unites us and gives us a vision of the future. And then the last thing in in the craziness that I'm (laughs) sharing this morning is done. Remember that Jesus is the king and not a politico. 
Jesus, if you'll notice what happened in both of these stories, he didn't say he belonged to this party or that party. The Pharisees invited him to dinner and tried to get him to identify himself with them. The zealots showed up at the Sermon on the Mount thinking that maybe he was one of them because of the way he talked about the kingdom of God. But Jesus never allowed himself to be a part of this political group or that political group. Jesus is not a political party, but the Lord of heaven and earth. So don't do to Jesus what he didn't do to himself. Which means... that when we begin to speak politics, we should never use the language of exclusiveness among brothers and sisters. Our hope is not in an elephant or a donkey, but in a lamb that was slain for the sins of the world and took them away. And I loved what David had to say this morning. You know, I don't have a say in whether or not Jesus is Lord of heaven and earth. God is what God is who made Jesus the Lord of heaven and earth. But what is incredibly profound to me is that he chose me and elected me. I, you and I are both part of the elect that have been brought to a place where one day we'll see God face to face. And one day we won't have to really worry about all these laws because death will be gone and sin will be gone and greed will be gone. Materialism will be gone. Dishonesty will be gone. Hatred will be gone. Biases, racism will be gone. Diseases will be gone. We will live in a place. We will live in a place where God is king and recognized by all as such. But in the meantime, we live as disciples of Jesus. And we enter into the political process of whatever they may look like in the world that we live in. And we have a voice and we have a say, recognizing that there are greater goods and that there are greater hopes than we might ever hope for ourselves. We're going to have a song now and we're going to stand and we're going to praise God for being the God that that calls us not away from this world, but into this world to minister to it and to be His icons, to be His images, to be the image of Jesus wherever we go and to minister to people, to love people and and to be the voice of God wherever we go. We're going to praise that God. We're also going to have some of these shepherds down here at the front. And if there are some needs that you might have you might need to be baptized this morning and to become a part of the kingdom of God or it might be that you need the prayers of the church to bless you and to help you with your your life, or it may be that you need counsel, whatever those needs might be. We're going to have these shepherds down here at the front. We want you to come down and talk to them as we stand and praise God together. There is a habitation built by the Lord.